So we got a lot of questions in the question bowl. More than can possibly be answered. And we'll, we'll try and weave in answers uh, to several questions sometimes when we answer the questions, do our best. Um, we'll begin with a question that's a question for all of us. And uh, I'm interested in hearing this from the other teachers too. Which is, how long have each of you practiced meditation and how did you begin? And a related question to that is, what steps did each of you take to take to practice from retreat practice into daily life? Sylvia, would you like to go first? Well, I was just thinking, John, maybe we should start with the most recent beginner of us. Okay. I'm definitely the, I don't know, when, when did you go to Kripala? What, what year? Oh, 1983. 1983, how about you? 77. I guess I'm the newest. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> so, <laughs> I started my practice, I mentioned the beginning of the retreat, um, just yesterday. <laughs> Started my practice right here in uh, 2000, and uh, I mentioned that one of the things that brought me to practice was the physical pain and the judgments and aversion to that discomfort. Also, I'd felt a um, a dissatisfaction and a calling for something more. I had had a good job, great relationship. I've had a nice house, had all the material things in life, good things, nothing wrong with those things, nothing wrong with those at all. But it was clear it wasn't enough, that there had to be, had to be something more. So I think that called me into the, uh, called me into the practice. And my very first introduction was a, a day long here, I'd never done meditation before, a day long here with uh, Sally Armstrong, um, and I had a whole lot of dukkha coming into practice, so I really had a strong call. And uh, I heard Sally say, if you're really serious about this practice, you should sit twice a day for 45 minutes. And I started doing that. There's a lot of dukkha and a real call for practice. And it took me about three years later to find out not many other people were doing that. <laughs> so maybe four or five years later, I saw Sally and I said, I really want to thank you for saying that. And her jaw, her jaw dropped and she said, I never said that. <laughs> so sometimes you hear what you need to hear. <laughs> so... I've talked a lot about bringing practice into, into daily life, which is so rich. And practice really comes alive in daily life practice and really supports the deepest realizations on the path. If we're practicing in daily life, we go on a long retreat, that retreat is gonna be all the more valuable. But especially in those first years, uh, getting connected to a Sangha, I was connected to Eugene, Cassius and uh, Howie Cohen Sangha, so I'd often go there once a week. 
and then um, getting into study group programs, doing readings, all supported the practice, especially in those uh, early years of getting connected to Sangha in that way. That first year or two, it felt like I hardly met anybody. Because it just, you're on retreat in silence and didn't get to know people. So really important to, to get connected through Sangha, through community. So who's next? I guess I am. You can go. Go. Okay. Uh-huh. So I did find uh, Kripalu Center in Massachusetts in 1983, but I lived in Manhattan uh, before that. And in 1971, when I got married, and I still am married to the same man, um, I, su- I suggested for our wedding present that we take a yoga class together. And so there wasn't very much yoga at that time, and there was this swami in Manhattan and his walk-up apartment with his oriental rugs on the floor, and we started taking yoga classes together. And, and like John, it was that same calling. Like, I have a really graced life. I have a family that loves each other, and we're actually kind to each other. Um, but... I was needing something more and something more. And somehow yoga called me, and that was the practice of asana, and which led to the practice of meditation. And so since 1971, I've had a yoga practice. When Kripalu moved in to my neighborhood in, in Massachusetts, I went, wow, okay, I can go. I have a, a place to call home. And it was at Kripalu in 1991 during a yoga and psychotherapy conference that I met Sylvia. And I hope you don't mind me telling this story. But there was a a panel of uh, practitioners of Buddhism and psychotherapy and Sylvia was on that panel. And they asked, the question was, after all these years of practice, What have you learned? And Sylvia said, I've learned to manage life more gracefully. And I said, I want that. And in 1994, I moved to California with my family. I have kids also. And uh, became part of the Wednesday morning Sangha and then started coming to Spirit Rock for short retreats, a little longer retreat and then began teaching the yoga practice in the two-month-long retreats that Sylvia led one month and Jack Cornfield led another month. And I would come for a couple of weeks of that and, and teach the yoga upstairs. And I just loved it. And I think meditation has had the most profound effect on my life. I mean, I love my yoga. And um, I have a practice every day, or almost every day. But the practice of meditation has just taken me to another place that integrates with where the yoga practice has taken me. And so not only have I taken it into my daily life as practice, but the big practice is in my family with my kids. They're my big gurus. And to, to call forth kindness 
as much as possible and then to to see my habits of mind arise but I have a different relationship to them but trust me they come up they just came up up the hill before um couldn't get my husband on the phone and I could hear myself going he's never available he hates the phone I really need to talk to so I could hear but I could laugh I could say oh there she is again the whiner so I really think that that has been the meditation practice has been allow has allowed me to become really intimate with myself and through that intimacy with everyone that I come in touch with. I hope that's true. Thank you. It's beautiful. Um, so I forgot about um, the yoga. It started in... So um, my practice started with yoga in 75. I was here at Berkeley at Cal. I came to Cal at in 73 and in 75 I got introduced to the Kundalini Yoga Um, it was a place in Berkeley and I met a guy who was doing yoga and teaching yoga and said you need to come to yoga and so I did and um, I was always searching for something and uh, the Sikhs turbans and swords and white and I was just fell in love with, um, with yoga and went it was on Channing Way. I went there like every morning at 6 a.m. I was at yoga. That was 75. and So that's where it started. Um, fast forward to 1982. Um, I was in New Zealand, um, stranded with a band that I was managing, and um, got there by some person who was not legitimate, and I had a whole band, and uh, so I'm sitting in a pub trying to figure out what to do because we had no tickets home, we had nothing, we had no book, no tour book, and we we're supposed to be there for three months. And I go to a pub, and right, that's what you do, you go to a pub. And there was this woman sitting there who had on a Mother Jones T-shirt, and I thought Mother Jones, oh my God, I know Mother Jones, I used to love Mother Jones, the magazine, and I came up to her, I said Mother Jones, and she spoke to me, she was a Kiwi woman. And she happened to have been in the music industry, and she was appalled by what had happened. So I had this beautiful angel come into my life, and she had somebody book a tour for the band and said, you're coming with me. I'm a Buddhist, and you're going to go on a retreat. And I said, okay, let's go. And I went on my first retreat in New Zealand, in Auckland, in 1982. It was uh, with Lama Zopa, um, Tibetan Buddhist. And it was exactly what I needed. I was going through a lot also at home. My, um, my family has this weird kidney disease. And my brother, my, one of my brothers was on dialysis. The other one, just as I left L.A., was going on dialysis. And I was just really heartbroken. And so, um, anyway, all of that is what brought me into Tibetan Buddhism. And that's where I was for a while. Um, and then in fast forward to 1995-ish, I'm at my job. I owned a business down in L.A. Um, and the phone rings and it's Jack Cornfield on the phone. And the weirdest thing, it's like Jack Cornfield. I thought it was a joke, but it was really Jack. And I had read some of his books. Um, and Jack 
was looking, had heard about me through a mutual friend, and he was teaching down at Vallecitos in in, uh, New Mexico, and I was a yoga teacher by then, and he wanted a yoga teacher, um, and he had heard about me and asked me what I teach with him. And of course, I dropped everything, and I went, and that was 95-ish, and then I got connected to Spirit Rock. And I would teach his retreats sometimes in the month loans and what have you. And that's how I got here, is Jack actually called me out of the blue. Um, such is my life. And so um, it, I was on the teaching side, on the yoga teaching side for many, many, all these years here. I've taught tons and tons of retreats. Sylvia and I actually met at Kripalu. I'm a Kripalu yoga teacher as well. And Jashoda and I know each other from that. We met um, at another conference at Kripalu. And, um, and then I've been working with you for I don't know how long on the Metta retreats. We've been doing them for at least over 10 years. Nine or 10. Yeah, like nine or 10 years. We do the Metta retreat every year in January. And I have, you know, it's been everything for me, the, my practice. Um, I can't even imagine my life actually without it, how people negotiate the world mm. without it, honestly. It was like what you said, Jashoda, just looking at how I respond to things differently than I used to. Um, not all the time, but when I don't, I notice it quicker than I used to, and I come back. And so it's just been being around great teachers, like I've always been around starting from 95, being in the background of a lot of retreats um, with Sylvia, with Jack, and other teachers. Um, it's just like osmosis, right? And I just kind of absorbed it all as much as I could. And here I am um, in the teacher training now. I'm, a ch- I'm, I'm actually not an official teacher yet. Um, I'm in the new latest cohort here at Spirit Rock that is a cohort of 20 people. And of those 20 people, 18 are people of color, finally. Yay for Spirit Rock. And I'm very proud to be a part of that cohort. And, um, And so I'm here with these wonderful teachers. Thank you for having me. So far, listening to the three of you, I think we all share the sense of somehow I was in the right place at the right time, and I met the right people. One day sooner, one day later, one different teacher, it might not have been the same. In 1977, I was 41 years old. Um, I had uh, four children, the oldest of whom was 21, and the youngest was 16. I had a a profession that I very much loved. I was a psychotherapist. Um, I'd been married for 23 years by then. I was married when I was quite young. Um, I was married just before my 19th birthday. And the man I still am married to uh, began in the 70s, as everybody did in California, it seemed, Uh, to look around at spiritual practices. He was with me at that conference in San Francisco uh, of transpersonal psychologists. And he was dogged on the trail of what he, uh, of a spiritual practice that he could 
that he could relate to and do. And truth to tell, I was really not so looking actively. I'm an accidental Buddhist and an accidental Buddhist teacher. He was looking, and we'd talk about it, and in those days, in the 70s, there was all kinds of meditation experiences. You could go with this guru and this swami and this mystic and this seer and this teacher and that teacher. Every weekend you could go someplace and get enlightened in another tradition. And he did a lot. He'd go off and come back and say, that was great, Syl, you should try it. And actually there were several things that I did try. I'm, I'm a pretty congenial person. Besides, it meant a weekend away, so I did that. And uh, I tried a lot of things and Nothing was bad for me, but nothing actually called me to change my life for it. And it, I remember when we would discuss his eager interest to find a spiritual practice, he would say, I'm, I'm, I really want to, uh, um, I really want to understand life. He's much more uh, mystical than I am. I really want to understand life. And I would say, you know, for me, I just want to really be able to stand that life. And I didn't have anything terrible about my life. I had everything wonderful. I'd married the person that I could stay with the whole of my life. All of our children were born healthy. We both had vocations that we worked at so that we didn't have to worry about sustenance. Everything was a charmed life, in fact, for which I am quite grateful. And my family was a lovely family to grow up in. That I, everybody really was very kind to each other and loved each other. But I, what I did say is, I, I just want to be able to stand life. I want to not be afraid of it. Everything is going so well for me. And I have this ominous, just under the consciousness theme going on with me, a kind of a melancholy in advance, because I know that it can't last. And pretty soon, something is going to happen. I remember there, were, there was a very tragic accident on the street where I live. A car rode up on the sidewalk accidentally out of control on a morning at 8.15 when the school children were all walking to school. And two young girls, six and seven years old, sisters, were killed. And one of them was a classmate of my daughter Elizabeth. And that was kind of a moment that my subconscious uh, under the current of worry, really turned into a kind of a alarm in my mind because I know that if that happened to me, I couldn't even imagine that happened to me. I thought to myself, something will happen to me sometime, and I really need to feel that I I can do something that I can stand it. I still did not make any link of that with spiritual practice. That was what I was thinking about. And then he'd come home, and it, then at one point a friend of his said, let's go do this two-week Vipassana retreat. And he came home and he said, so this really is it. You should really try this. And again, two weeks away, okay, you know. So I did that two weeks in silence up in Portland. It was hard as anything. It was really hard. But there were things about it that just, uh, if we had more time or another time, I would tell you about. But I had some really clear understanding that there were things that, there were ways in which my mind felt more at ease at times during that retreat, not because I had some special, amazing awareness, but just because I felt that my mind was softer and more relaxed. And one of the words that I 
began to hear about what the effects of practice were, could be, was that the mind becomes more malleable. I love that word because I thought to myself, if something happens to me that's terrible, my mind will break. And I thought maybe maybe this is a way that it'll become malleable, it won't break. Maybe, I had some sense. And I liked my teachers very much. And I liked to sit quietly. And I love to be on retreat. I'm a very talkative person. So you can't, really, I talk on and on. But I love being quiet. And I now love being on a month of retreat. And I'm very good about being quiet. I love it. So I began to go to retreats frequently. But because I had a family and a partner and a, a whole practice that I couldn't just leave, I couldn't go away and do extended periods of practice. What I could do was frequent weekends and not so frequent five days or a week. And um, every, I think twice in my whole, I don't know, many decades of practice, I did a month. So I didn't, because I really couldn't leave that whole scene and keep it going. So from the beginning, I knew that this had to be interpolated into a life. But I also knew that what I thought might happen I thought more amazing things would happen, more exotic things would happen than happened. Uh, that was the, the time of bells and gongs and you know that people would report, I looked at so-and-so and light was shining out of her and I looked at so-and-so and he had levitated off his zafu and we heard stories of people with mystical talents, they could walk through walls. And uh, I actually did not want any of those mystical talents so much. What I wanted is to not be so frightened. I wanted magically not to think catastrophic thoughts every time somebody didn't call or didn't come home on time. I wanted to not feel so frightened of life. So I did uh, uh, 10 years of practice and then I met Metta practice and I felt immediately much better. My general alarm system just really settled down amazingly in just the first week of practice. Sharon Salzberg, who was a person I hadn't met by that time, became my teacher at that point and has been my good friend for all these years since. So my teachers were Jack Cornfield and Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg and uh, uh, a lot of other people as well wise people that I met in other traditions. But those were my main Vipassana teachers. And at one point, I, I'm sure I was in Kripalu because it's in a Kripalu book about this. There was a panel where they said, uh, so what's changed? Oh, no, no, I'm telling the story wrong. I've conflated two. I remember I told this story in Kripalu. I told the story that after some, at that point, 20, 25 years of practice, my husband had said to me at the breakfast table one day, so, Sil, after these 20, 25 years of practice, what's happened to you? How have you changed? So now when I tell that story, I think that's weird. How come you didn't know? Anyway, <laughs> what's happened to you, Sil, in those 25 years of practice? And I said, I became kind. And he said, nah, you were always kind. I like to think that maybe that's true. I said, well, then what I mean is I became kinder. And that absolutely happened. And that, I think, is the best thing about what happened. Because I'm kinder to myself when I'm 
overwhelmed with worried thoughts. I'm kinder to myself when I don't behave as well as I'd really like to. I'm kinder to other people when they behave in a way, in person or in my thoughts, when they behave in a way that's really difficult for me to countenance or endure. And I'm much less likely, I'm more likely than I ever would have been to be able to remember everyone is doing the best they can. Everybody has a really hard road to hoe. They're doing the best they can. This person who is doing this is in pain. And if they weren't in pain, they wouldn't be doing this. So my friend Jack and I, had sometime, we were teaching together a few weeks ago. And I said, uh, you know, when I think about metta resolves, I, and I teach people about metta resolves for all beings, including those people who are difficult people. Uh, <laughs> one of the ways in the text that the difficult person is described is they don't call them the difficult person, they call them the enemy. And somewhere in the political correctness of the last 20 years, everybody has started to say difficult person. I am not in agreement with that because my mind is not politically correct. When I see or hear so-and-so did this or said this or something or other, my mind does not think of, oh, that difficult person. My mind thinks, yeah, look at that. You know, it's not, it's not, my mind is not politically correct. I don't say that out of my mouth. But I think it's a good designation. And I say to people, when I, I, I don't feel I really want to send goodwill and good wishes to someone who frightens me. I want to console myself. Wow, so you're still frightened. You're frightened again. Take a breath. People will figure it out. People will figure it out. Relax, so take a breath. Okay, the alarm is over. May I be peaceful and free of suffering. May all beings be peaceful and free of suffering. May that person or these people also be free of suffering. I can wish out of compassion. I can wish them free of suffering. It's a really a big thing to discuss. It's another topic that we can more talk about another time. He was cute. He said, uh, I think you're wrong. It's not so often that I'm in here teaching with Jack Cornfield, and he says, I think you're wrong. In front of a room full of, it was down in the other hall, but he's in front of a room full of people. So he said, I think you're wrong. I said, well, okay, go ahead. I think you're, <laughs> anyway. But it was very sweet, because he could think I'm wrong, and I think he's, we have different views, and I love him to pieces, and he's extremely wise, and I know that he thinks I am. So it's fine, it's fine. And I'm kinder. And I'm happier because I'm kinder. My mind hurts me less. I think that's what we're doing. It's all about... One more thing to say. When I train teachers, teachers in training these days, uh, one thing that people say to me but as I mentor them is they say, you know, I know the Dharma pretty well. I feel comfortable about teaching it. I feel good about describing meditative techniques. The only thing I feel shaky about is when I'm at the end of a period of teaching and I say to a group, do you have any questions? I'm worried that someone's going to ask a question that I don't know the answer to. So I say, you don't have to worry about that because it's like Jeopardy. You have the answer and you have to know the question. The answer to every question is compassion. 
So if somebody says, what should I do about this, or what should I do about that, or this comes up in me, or that feeling, you know in your mind that the answer is you have to cultivate compassion in that moment because it's the only place that you're really, really safe, and then frame this question in that particular way. It works all the time because what we're coming to towards is how is relating every moment of our practice to um, thriving in the cultivation of compassion. I think it's not much different from mindfulness. I think it's arbitrary. Somebody said today, I was happy, oh, John, I think, read from Deepama, and I didn't know that she had said straight out that mindfulness is the same as metta, which I have been saying for a while now, before I die. I want people to know it's the same. Just you practice it in a different technique, but it's the same. And I also want, before that time, to have really said a number of times, what I'm going to say right now, which is that every moment of mindfulness is a moment of compassion for yourself and for everyone else, because you haven't messed it up. You haven't made whatever's going on worse. Every moment of mindfulness is a moment of compassion. And I feel blessed in my life. Go, John. Are you the organizer? Okay. I love this question. I love to be asked this question. I'll read it as it came to me. I'm not used to sitting cross-legged on the floor. I have tight hips and a history of lower back pain. What's rocking? I'm spending a lot of practice time focused on the uncomfortable sensations in my body that come along with sitting and working to keep my spine vertical and straight. Is this good practice or am I trying too hard and pushing my limits too much? A. Nobody said that you have to sit cross-legged on the floor to be able to be a good yogi. So, in fact, in the Yoga Sutras, which is the, one of the sacred texts of yoga, there's actually only one sloka or, or one sutra about uh, asana practice. And that is that may the asana or the posture be steady and comfortable. So, how do you find a way to have your body steady and comfortable? You see me up here, I, you know, I have a different body every moment of the day, or at least, you know, the one I wake up with is different than the one I go to bed with. So, I have to accommodate my sitting. Sometimes it means sitting in a chair. Sometimes it means sitting on the floor, sometimes against a wall. Sometimes cross-legged, actually... To tell you the truth, I do a lot of my meditation practice when I wake in the morning. I pile my pillows behind me in my bed and sit and often extend my legs. So it's not about how you sit. That being said, it will help if you do a movement practice that helps to open the joints and create more flexibility in the body. There are a lot of great and different yoga practices, yoga styles. One of the styles that I really love is called yin yoga, which is um, a more, 
they call it a passive practice, but there's nothing passive about it. But it helps to open the joints and the the connective tissue. It goes in, and so it be, it brings more flexibility into your movement. So and there are warm ups. There are ways to open the hips and open the knees and open the feet and work with the spine. So my only recommendations is find the way that you can have your back more or less aligned, so that your spine is long. And that you're grounded, whether you're sitting in the chair or against a wall. If you're sitting in a back jack, these little chairs, don't sit back. You don't want to create a, a circle in your spine, or you really you want to support yourself, uh, at least in the lumbar spines, or sit up in the front of a chair so that you can be attentive. Put pillows under your feet so that your hips, your legs are aligned with your knees. And most importantly, take the few minutes that it actually takes to get the body aligned and comfortable and steady so that you're not fidgeting throughout the practice. If you want to take on a a vow of not moving for the next 20 minutes, by all means do that. But we're not here to sit with excruciating pain. We're here to train the mind and the heart. Thank you. Thanks for the question. Question, uh, how do we and should we maintain our equilibrium in the face of the current administration and its supporters' agenda? Outrage and resistance create suffering for us in the present, but might they be more likely to prevent greater suffering in the future? How do we be both open-hearted and militant? Mm-hmm. A great question. It comes up a lot in, uh, in my Sangha on Monday nights, this, this kind of question. It's, it's a challenging time. And our calling is to be present right here in this direct body experience, to know the anger and the fear and the grief that we might feel and to know, to know that experience directly. And it can provide actually energy, the force of anger can provide energy in then speaking up and taking action, but with our practice from a place of peace, from the underlying intention of compassion and kindness. And when we, when we speak and act in the world on issues that are you know, really key human rights issues, really that we care most deeply about, if we can speak and act from that place of peace and loving kindness, our voices can be amazingly strong and powerful. When I start to get on the edge of falling into reactivity and letting the anger spew out around what I see going on in the world, happening even to children, Um, When I go to that edge, I remember and recall people like Gandhi and Martin Luther King and Nelson Mandela, deeply committed to nonviolence and the power of their voices when they were speaking and acting from love. 
Another inspiring figure for me is a kind of a living civil rights legend is John Lewis, who has been a civil rights leader who has been deeply committed to to being a pacifist and an activist, I think since about 1961, very young young man. And he's he's continued to uh, be a powerful activist. So interesting, there's a a story I'd hope to share about his forgiveness of... um, There's a story of his having been beaten by somebody when he was in a protest in the early 1960s, I think in Alabama. And 30 years later, that man who beat him came to him, came to John Lewis, and this man's son was accompanying him. And he said, Mr. Lewis, I engaged in that violence. I beat you, and I'm here to apologize and ask for your forgiveness. And John Lewis forgave him. John Lewis is now a congressman, longtime congressman from Georgia. And he forgave him. And he was quoted as saying, I believe the quote is, hatred is too great a burden to bear. So even in times of when there's so much hatred, if we can act from love and not be kind of tipped over into <coughs> falling into that hatred too, then we can be forces of love and light in the world. I'd like to um, add a little bit to that answer as well. Is that okay? Um, Also, I don't know if you know um, John Bayard Rustin Mm. and the work that he did with Dr. King. And he actually was the one who really was behind the march, the 63 march. Mm -hmm. Black gay man who was not put in the limelight because he was gay. Um, But Bayard Rustin is my biggest hero mm. back in those days um, of the men. But I want to add a little bit to that, um, to the question of how do, we, how do we be activists? How do we change, make change, and at the same time keep our heart open? And so one of the people that I really love is a woman named Vandana Shiva. And Vandana Shiva is an Indian woman from India and a brilliant activist of, um, in agriculture and civil rights there and food, justice, and climate, and you name it. And she's just um, amazing. And so I, I come across this. I happen to, like you, you keep the, the, um, the metta sutta, I keep Vandana Shiva's <laughs> with me. Um, and she was asked the question, how do you do it? How do you do the work that you do and stay, you know, um, sane and level and and open-hearted, because she is. And the answer is, well, it's always a mystery. This is verbatim what she said. It's always a mystery because you don't know why you get depleted or recharged. But this much I know. I do not allow myself to be overcome by hopelessness, no matter how tough the situation. I believe that if you just that if you just do your little bit without thinking of the bigness of what you stand against, if you turn to the enlargement of your own capacities, just that itself creates new potential. And I've learned from the Bhagavad Gita and other teachings of our culture to detach myself from the results of what I do because those are not in my hands. The context is not in your control 
but your commitment is yours to make. And you can make the deepest commitment with a total detachment about where it will take you. You want it to lead to a better world, and you shape your actions and take full responsibility for them, but then you have detachment. And that combination of deep passion and deep detachment allows me to take on the next challenge because I don't cripple myself. I don't tie myself in knots. I function like a free being. I think getting that freedom is a social duty because I think we owe it to each other and we owe it to, to each not to burden each other with prescription and demands. I think what we owe each other is a celebration of life and to replace fear and hopelessness with fearlessness and joy. So that's one way to do it. <laughs> Should I take my question? Sure. Um, I have a question here that um, got my attention. The question says, right action slash right communication. It's about right action and right communication. How to know when an action is right action, especially when it is received in a hurtful, negative way, when the intention seemed wholesome? Um, that's a great question, I think. And... Um, it's interesting that this question would come up right now as I just did a webinar, which sounds true, about this about three days ago. Um, and what it was about is, and what this question brings up for me, is the, the um, agreement that sometimes, you know, when you go into agreements, when you go into a, a, a meeting and you have agreements like confidentiality, these kinds of things, one of the agreements is intent versus impact. And that's what this question is asking. Intent versus impact. Someone, and particularly the East Bay Meditation Center, which is in Oakland, California, which I'm a part of, which is the most diverse center, I think probably meditation center in the US, um, is wonderful. And we have, uh, when you walk in, this big sign of the multicultural agreements, right? for multicultural sangha building, for, for community building. And so intent versus impact is one of them. And basically, what we've been saying is how important intent is, that intent is what it's about, what is your intention, and that that is, um, that is what's most important, is that you have a good, loving, open-hearted intention. But sometimes that intention can cause harm to someone else can cause impact, right? You said something that you didn't know was going to cause harm, and particularly in these multicultural settings, it's typically a situation where a white person has said something to, that offends a person of color, and suddenly there's silence, everybody goes into their corners, and nothing ever happens. And and it's a place that I really work with people on how we get through that because we won't do the good work that we need to do if we're in separate corners. And so with that, the intent versus impact in, in this particular setting, um, intentions are important and are the foundation. 
And at the same time, one has to be responsible for the information and for learning what they need to learn in situations. So what I mean is that intention, your intent is not enough by itself. Coupled with that needs to be, should, can be, which is helpful, is learning more, putting yourself in situations where you understand the dynamics that you're in, whatever the group is, whatever the situation is, because when you add that with intention, then less impact typically happens. Or when it does happen, then there's another way to to deal with it without shame, without blame, without any of that, because that's where we get stuck and that's does no good. Shame and blame are need to go out the window, out the door. They're very unhelpful, unproductive. And so I answer that question by saying, add more understanding of whatever it is that you're in, along with your intent. And with that, then those two things coupled together make a big difference than just, I have good intention and I've harmed somebody. But I haven't done the work to understand. You have to do the work to add with the intention. Does that make sense to everyone? Yeah? Thank you for asking that question. It's a real important question. I think that's um, just as we said. Uh, the fifth, uh, what was it? The fifth noble truth. Well, how does Larry fifth noble truth. truth. How does Larry say the fifth noble truth? Is forgiving the first noble truth. <laughs> it's the what? Forgiving the first noble truth. Oh, forgiving the first noble truth. Yeah. So I want to say the sixth noble truth. Then <laughs> is uh, I, I really think there's a lot. Is wise relationship which is not so separate from any of the other parts because they all, wise relationships certainly involves wise action and wise uh, livelihood and all the wises of effort and mindfulness and concentration. But I think wise relationship means not just managing individually to provoke each other in whatever kind of relationship and learn from it, but being committed to using wise relationship, to seek wise relationship, to be with other people in relationship, so that there's a way actually of seeing uh, if you're making any progress. Years ago, many years ago, I had a phone call. It's, uh, I'll, I'll see if I can tell the story in a moment because it just popped in my mind. Years ago, I had a phone call while on a retreat in a place where it was a fine retreat center, but. It was a, a kind of a building where uh, there was one office at the corner of a big room where people were doing walking meditation back and forth. And uh, there was a telephone in that office, not for retreatants. But anyway, a phone call came in for me, and it was um, a journalist writing an article for a magazine that I felt I wanted to answer because, I, among other things, I do that kind of thing. And also because I thought it would be a chance to talk about this new practice that was now spreading. And this is, must have been in the 80s, really. And the person said, um, uh, uh, people are saying that people now have 
solid religions uh, that they that they're not stuck with their natal religion. People feel free to take like a salad bar, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of this. I like that. I'll take this also. I'll mix it all together. It's a salad religion. Uh, do you think it's a good or a bad thing? Do you think that's true? And do you think it's a good or a bad thing? So I don't know if it's a good or a bad thing. I, maybe it's true. I said, you know, the um, the American character, Eric Erickson said in a very famous teaching years ago, that the American character, because it's, it's built on the uh, image and the myth image of the frontier people who really and went into uncharted territories and figured it out by themselves and, and improvised and made things work. So maybe people, maybe we are the inheritors of improvisational skills that we can make do and we, why not make the best we can? He said, well, do you think it's a, a, a bad thing? What could be wrong with it? So I said, well, I don't know. I said, but if, if you were the only people uh, if you were going it alone with your religion practice, if you were the only people in your religion without a community or people that you met together to do your religion with, I could see that uh, nobody would be able to tell you, uh, by the, you're great, you're making a lot of progress. Uh, and wow, it's wonderful to have, yeah, it's wonderful to see the changes in you. And there'd be nobody to tell you, don't kid yourself, nothing is happening. So if you were all by yourself, then there's a pause on the phone and this person says to me, what's supposed to happen? So I, and I had been trying to keep my voice low because it was very poorly insulated, that room. So I started out by saying, well, uh, <clears throat> if you were all by yourself, that uh, what's supposed to happen is that as you continue to practice paying attention, you see more and more directly how much suffering is in the world and how much suffering is part of the basic fabric of everybody's experience. And the more you realize that deeply in your own body and experience, the more you are transformed <laughs> into compassion and kindness out of normal human sympathy for the people around you and the more you are mandated by your own heart to go out and take a stance on social activism to make this world a better place for people because of the experiences that you have together with your community and together with your own direct experience of what's going of suffering we're supposed to be transformed and change the world then there's a really long period of silence. And he said, very good. So I, at the time, I thought to myself, it is very good. It's a good thing to say right now. It's 9 o'clock. This is the best thing we can possibly do, is take care of ourselves and take care of the on behalf of the world. I think that's what we're doing. Not this or that, but taking care of ourselves on behalf of the world. I would like to read one thing also that I carry around with me these days, just because I recently read it. It's from um, a book written by Alan Liu, who's a fr who was a friend of mine. He was a ra he's dead, and he was a rabbi in San Francisco 
who wrote a book about life. That's essentially a Dharma book. The name of which is, um, this is real. <laughs> this is real and you are absolutely unprepared. Speaking of life. It is. It does not come with a full instruction man manual. We have to make it up. And fortunately, when I say I take refuge in the Dharma, I figure that's the instruction manual, along with everything else I learned from all my teachers. And he's talking about the sense that suffering is so enormous that, and karma is so inscrutable and in, imponderable that here we've each of us arrived at this point in our life impacted with everything that ever happened to us ever and to all our forebears and to the whole world before them and everything that happened in karmic terms you call that proximally and distal, proximal karma and distal karma all the way back to the beginning origins of the world and uh, here is Alan saying that we often feel I often feel um, both uh, our imp my impotence in the world in making a difference and the miraculous capacity we have to bear and nurture life. I feel a deep sense of joy when I feel these two things, the impotence and the great joy in life itself. Every moment of my life I am utterly powerless and infinitely powerful. Every moment of my life I am inescapably hammered into place by everything that has ever happened since the creation of the universe. And every moment I am free to act in a way that will alter the course of that great flow of being forever. Thank you very much for writing all the questions. I'm hopeful that even if we didn't say your question exactly, that we read them all day, we read them at lunch and we read them at dinner, and I, I'm hoping that what we said, in, we realized we could not individually do them all in this space of time, so I'm hopeful that all the things that we said contributed in some way as an, as a, as an answer. Because there's only one answer. <laughs> they, you know, uh, here's a one tiny story I'm going to tell you because it would be good for you. It's a moment that changed my life. My, my friend, my teacher, Sharon Salzberg, when I first thought I should practice metta, I'll fly to Barry. I phoned her. I said, listen, I heard about this new metta that you're teaching. She, in in 18, 1986, she went to Burma and spent six weeks learning from Upandita. And in 1987, I went to Barry and learned from her. Um, I said, I want to come and have you teach me that. She said, well, it's okay. There's a mindfulness retreat going on, but you can sit in the hall and walk and sit and walk, and I'll meet you every day and give you instructions, and you'll do the instructions. And so I did that, and it really it immediately made a whole change in my mind and my life. But one of the things I learned is I'd go and 
see her for my one-on-one -on -one meeting. And there's a kind of a protocol that where you go in and you tell the teacher what's happening with you. And she or he or tells you what they think you should maybe try. And it's, it has a certain formality about it, even though Sharon and I soon got to be friends. So you don't talk about other stuff. You just come in, present, hear the thing, say thank you very much, and go out. And uh, I noticed after a few days that as I was going out, I would say thank you very much and get up and go and hold the, I had my hand on the doorknob, ready to open it and go out. And she'd say to me, remember, Sylvia, be happy. And I'd go out and I'd think, well, that's an interesting thing to say to somebody. You know, it's maybe like in California, the, the people who put your clothes, your, your, your groceries in a bag, say, have a good day. Maybe it's one of those things that you, maybe it's a, remember, Sylvia, be happy. And then I'd go about my day and I'd be sitting and walking and sitting and walking. And my mind would fall into a glitch of, Hopefully, I'm not getting anywhere, I'm falling asleep, I don't get it, why am I here, I shouldn't have come, I had big expectations, all the kind of things that come up in your mind. And, I, and if I was unaware of them and let them slip by and sort of fill up my mind, they depress the mind, the body, the spirit, and I'd be walking along and all of a sudden it was like magically through the airwaves, I would hear the voice of Sharon in my mind saying, remember Sylvia, be happy. And I think, I'm not happy. Now that's a moment of real mindfulness. In the middle of that falling apart mind, I wasn't happy. And that moment, whoa, I'm not happy. May I be peaceful. May I be happy. May I be end of suffering. May I come to the end of suffering. One or another, no even discussions about it, just back to the practice and making those fervent incantations on behalf of my well-being and the well-being of everyone else. So I like that as an instruction, and I'm glad to end it, at least for tonight, by saying, remember, be happy. So there's an invitation to continue to practice if you like. The room will be open all night. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.